Alma chapter 32. Right from the very beginning, the missionaries went forth to teach their message of repentance in tracting cottage meetings and street meetings. They even taught in the synagogues, but we feel quite certain they were never invited to ascend one of the Ramiumptums and proclaim the gospel from one of those high towers. Nevertheless, the vigorous manner in which they went forth to preach the gospel is demonstrated from the first verse. And it came to pass that they did go forth and began to preach the word of God unto the people, entering into their synagogues and into their houses, yea, and even they did preach the word in their streets. It is the universal experience of the Lord's missionaries that the first people who sympathetically listen to them are usually the poor. Therefore the scripture says, And it came to pass that after much labor among them, they began to have success among the poor class of people. For behold, they were cast out of the synagogues because of the coarseness of their apparel. Therefore they were not permitted to enter into their synagogues to worship God, being esteemed as filthiness. Therefore they were poor. Yea, they were esteemed by their brethren as dross. Therefore they were poor as to things of the world, and also they were poor in heart. However, it was almost by accident that Alma discovered the poor in this city. It seems that while he was addressing a crowd of the upper class on the hill Oneida, a great crowd of the poor came up behind him. Here is how Alma discovered the anxiety and interest of the poor. Now as Alma was teaching and speaking unto the people upon the hill Oneida, there came a great multitude unto him, who were those of whom we have been speaking, of whom were poor in heart because of their poverty as to the things of the world. And they came unto Alma, and the one who was the foremost among them said unto him, Behold, what shall these my brethren do, for they are despised of all men because of their poverty? yea, and more especially by our priests, for they have cast us out of our synagogues, which we have labored abundantly to build with our own hands. And they have cast us out because of our exceeding poverty, and we have no place to worship our God. And behold, what shall we do? And now when Alma heard this, he turned him about, his face immediately towards him, and he beheld with great joy for he beheld that their afflictions had truly humbled them, and that they were in a preparation to hear the word. Notice that Alma had to turn around to address the crowd of poor people. That is how we know they came up behind him. Notice that it was the priests who had excluded the poor from their religious worship. However, these are not the priests of Alma. Going clear back to the days of King Noah, we have noticed that as soon as apostasy creeps into a body of the people, they immediately release the priests of the true church and appoint priests of their own. These substitute priests invariably turn out to be proud and money-minded. They dress in fine apparel and stoutly resist the attendance of the poor in their worship services. The poor complain to Alma, that they had helped to build the synagogues and places of worship, but are now driven out. Naturally, this was music to the ears of Alma and the missionaries. We read, Therefore he did say no more to the other multitude, but he stretched forth his hand 
and cried unto those whom he beheld, who were truly penitent, and said unto them, I behold that ye are lowly in heart, and if so, blessed are ye. Behold, thy brother hath said, What shall we do? For we are cast out of our synagogues, that we cannot worship our God. Behold, I say unto you, Do ye suppose that ye cannot worship God, save it be in your synagogues only? And moreover I would ask, Do ye suppose that ye must not worship God only once in a week? Alma sets out to win the hearts of these poor people. He says that the fact they have been compelled to come humbly to seek advice from Alma could turn out to be a great blessing to them. I say unto you, it is well that ye are cast out of your synagogues, that ye may be humble, and that ye may learn wisdom, for it is necessary that ye should learn wisdom. For it is because that ye are cast out, that ye are despised of your brethren because of your exceeding poverty, that ye are brought to a lowliness of heart, for ye are necessarily brought to be humble. And now, because ye are compelled to be humble, blessed are ye. For a man sometimes, if he is compelled to be humble, seeketh repentance. And now, surely, whosoever repenteth shall find mercy. And he that findeth mercy and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And now, as I said unto you, that because ye were compelled to be humble, ye were blessed, do ye not suppose that they are more blessed who truly humble themselves because of the word? Alma commends the people for coming to him and humbly seeking answers to their questions. But before he answers their questions, he wants to make sure they have come for the right reason. Therefore it says, Yea, he that truly humbleth himself and repenteth of his sins and endureth to the end, the same shall be blessed, yea, much more blessed than they who are compelled to be humble because of their exceeding poverty. Therefore, blessed are they who humble themselves without being compelled to be humble. Or rather, in other words, blessed is he that believeth in the word of God and is baptized without stubbornness of heart, yea, without being brought to know the word, or even compelled to know before they will believe. Alma wants to make sure that the people did not come seeking signs, but really want to be taught the pure, simple gospel for its own sake. However, he warns them that if he tells them the truth and what God expects them to do, and they do with it not, they will be condemned, for every man is judged according to his works after he has been taught what to do. Yea, there are many who do say, If thou wilt show unto us a sign from heaven, then we shall know of a surety, then we shall believe. Now I ask, Is this faith? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. For if a man knoweth a thing, he hath no cause to believe, for he knoweth it. And now, how much more cursed is he that knoweth the will of God, and doeth it not, than he that only believeth, or only hath cause to believe, and falleth into transgression. Now of this thing ye must judge. Behold, I say unto you, that it is on the one hand even as it is on the other, and it shall be unto every man according to his work. Now he returns to developing faith in God. 
If men do not develop their faith in God by signs, how do they develop their faith so they can believe in him? Assuming they want to know what he meant by faith, he says. And now, as I said concerning faith, faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. This is one of the best definitions of faith I have ever heard. Almanac wants to stress how important it is to have faith in God and believe in his revelations which have come through angels. And now behold, I say unto you, and I would that ye should remember, that God is merciful unto all who believe on his name. Therefore he desireth in the first place that ye should believe, yea, even on his word. And now he imparteth his word by angels unto men, yea, not only men, but women also. Now this is not all. Little children do have words given unto them many times, which confound the wise and the learned. Alma is about to continue his discourse when he gets a qualm of conscience and stops in the middle of a sentence to apologize. He says he didn't mean to insult any of them by suggesting that they were all compelled to be humble. This apology occurs in the following two verses. And now, my beloved brethren, as ye have desired to know of me, what ye shall do because ye are afflicted and cast out. Now I do not desire that ye should suppose that I mean to judge you only according to that which is true, for I do not mean that ye, all of you, have been compelled to humble yourselves. For I verily believe that there are some among you who would humble themselves, let them be in whatsoever circumstances they might. Now Alma is ready to go back to the subject of faith and tell his famous parable of the seed of faith which, if planted in the heart, can develop to produce a tree with tangible fruit. He says, Now as I said concerning faith, that it was not a perfect knowledge, even so it is with my words. Ye cannot know of their surety at first, unto perfection, any more than faith is a perfect knowledge. But behold, if ye will awake, and arouse your faculties, even to an experiment upon my words, and exercise a particle of faith. Yea, even if ye can no more than desire to believe, let this desire work in you, even until ye believe in a manner that ye can give place for a portion of my words. Now we will compare the word unto a seed. Now if ye give place that a seed may be planted in your heart, behold, if it be a true seed or a good seed, if ye do not cast it out by your unbelief that ye will resist the Spirit of the Lord, behold, it will begin to swell within your breasts. And when you feel these swelling motions, ye will begin to say within yourselves, It must needs be that this is a good seed, or that the word is good, for it beginneth to enlarge my soul. Yea, it beginneth to enlighten my understanding. Yea, it beginneth to be delicious to me. Now behold, would not this increase your faith? I say unto you, yea, nevertheless, it hath not grown up to a perfect knowledge. Notice that Alma does not press the parable too far or too fast. Having established that one can feel the swelling of the heart or mind 
This becomes tangible evidence, but it is not perfect knowledge. It is evidence, but not proof. Nevertheless, it is sufficient to begin the enlightening of one's understanding and the swelling within one's soul. But behold, as the seed swelleth, and sprouteth, and beginneth to grow, then you must needs say that the seed is good. For behold, it swelleth, and sprouteth, and beginneth to grow. And now behold, will not this strengthen your faith? Yea, it will strengthen your faith. For ye will say, I know that this is a good seed. For behold, it sprouteth, and beginneth to grow. And now behold, are ye sure that this is a good seed? I say unto you, Yea, for every seed bringeth forth unto its own likeness. Therefore if a seed groweth, it is good. But if it groweth not, behold, it is not good. Therefore it is cast away. And now behold, because ye have tried the experiment, and planted the seed, and it swelleth, and sprouteth, and beginneth to grow, ye must needs know that the seed is good. Now Alma is ready to press his point, that the individual ultimately does reach a point of certainty, and knows that the experiment is working. For the moment faith itself is left dormant, and is replaced by a tangible sense of certainty. But it is only a certainty that the seed is good and is growing. That is as far as the issue of certainty can be pressed. And now, behold, is your knowledge perfect? Yea, your knowledge is perfect in that thing, and your faith is dormant. And this because ye know, for ye know that the word hath swelled your souls, and ye also know that it hath sprouted up, that your understanding doth begin to be enlightened, and your mind doth begin to expand. The next step is to have the faith to make this seed produce a tree, a tree that will produce the fruit of pure knowledge. This is Alma's message in the next three verses. Oh, then, is not this real? I say unto you, yea, because it is light. And whatsoever is light is good, because it is discernible. Therefore ye must know that it is good. And now, behold, after ye have tasted this light, is your knowledge perfect? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. Neither must ye lay aside your faith, for ye have only exercised your faith to plant the seed, that ye might try the experiment to know if the seed was good. And behold, as the tree beginneth to grow, ye will say, Let us nourish it with great care, that it may get root, that it may grow up and bring forth fruit unto us. And now behold, if ye nourish it with much care, it will get root and grow up and bring forth fruit. But after all this effort, the fruit of this tree can be lost. But if ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away, and ye pluck it up and cast it out. Now this is not because the seed was not good, neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable, but it is because your ground is barren, and ye will not nourish the tree, therefore ye cannot have the fruit thereof. 
And thus, if ye will not nourish the word looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof, ye can never pluck of the fruit of the tree of life. Notice how gently Alma has used this parable to lead the thinking of the people to a new kind of understanding without offending them. The last three verses of this chapter are Alma's plea to these humble, simple people to diligently cultivate the seed of faith until it produces the tree that will bring forth the rich harvest of knowledge they are seeking. But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow by your faith with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root. And behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, and which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit, even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst. Then, my brethren, ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long-suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. It is likely that Alma referred to this process of developing faith into knowledge scores of times as he unfolded the gospel message so they could understand it. Alma chapter 33 At this juncture of Alma's parable of the seed, the humble, poor, persecuted people among the Zoramites were filled with questions. Some of these are highlighted in the first verse. Now after Alma had spoken these words, they sent forth unto him desiring to know whether they should believe in one God, that they might obtain this fruit of which he had spoken, or how they should plant the seed, or the word of which he had spoken, which he said must be planted in their hearts, or in what manner they should begin to exercise their faith. It is obvious that Alma is not going to get diverted with a wide variety of questions about the parable of the seed. He first wants to straighten out an erroneous misconception of the Zoramites that they can only worship God in one of the synagogues which they helped to build and from which they have recently been evicted. And Alma said unto them, Behold, ye have said that ye could not worship your God, because ye are cast out of your synagogues. But behold, I say unto you, If ye suppose that ye cannot worship God, ye do greatly err, and ye ought to search the Scriptures. If ye suppose that they have taught you this, ye do not understand them. Alma knows better than to go into a theological discussion of this problem. He needs a more simple approach, and so he reminds them of the story of a man named Zenos, who was a Nephite hero. He says, Do ye remember to have read what Zenos, the prophet of old, has said concerning prayer or worship? For he said, Thou art merciful, O God, 
for thou hast heard my prayer, even when I was in the wilderness. Yea, thou wast merciful when I prayed concerning those who were mine enemies. Thou didst turn them to me. Yea, O God, and thou wast merciful unto me when I did cry unto thee in my field, when I did cry unto thee in my prayer, and thou didst hear me. And again, O God, when I did turn to my house, thou didst hear me in my prayer. And when I did turn unto my closet, O Lord, and prayed unto thee, thou didst hear me. Yea, thou art merciful unto thy children when they cry unto thee, to be heard of thee and not of men, and thou wilt hear them. Yea, O God, thou hast been merciful unto me, and heard my cries in the midst of thy congregations. Yea, and thou hast also heard me when I have been cast out and have been despised by mine enemies. Yea, thou didst hear my cries and wast angry with mine enemies, and thou didst visit them in thine anger with speedy destruction. And thou didst hear me because of mine afflictions and my sincerity, and it is because of thy Son that thou hast been thus merciful unto me. Therefore I will cry unto thee in all mine afflictions, for in thee is my joy. For thou hast turned thy judgments away from me because of thy Son. In these verses, Alma has established two things. First of all, he has established that God hears his servants in the wilderness, in the fields, in their homes, in the synagogues, or wherever they are. The place isn't important. God will hear you. Secondly, he hears you because of his beloved son. In three steps, Alma has gone from the seed in the heart to the willingness of God to hear all their prayers to the mission of God's beloved son. What a great teacher. And the last topic was where Alma wanted to be all the time. From here on, Alma dwells exclusively on the subject of the Son of God. And now Alma said unto them, Do ye believe those scriptures which have been written by them of old? Behold, if ye do, ye must believe what Zena said. For behold, he said, Thou hast turned away thy judgments because of thy son. Notice how Alma started out by quoting Zenus to prove that prayer is appropriate any time and any place. Now he is using Zenus to prove that his prayers were answered because of the sun. Alma is challenging the whole foundation of the Zoramite prayer on the Ramiumptum. In that prayer, the Zoramite said, quote, Thou hast made it known unto us that there shall be no Christ. Furthermore, thou hast elected us to be saved, while all around us are elected to be cast down to hell. Unquote. <laughs> Talk about the satanical antichrist doctrines of Nehor and Korihor. Here they were being taught in Antionum by the priests of the Zoramites. The scriptures were apparently widely spread among the people. Therefore Alma confronted them with the teachings of their most famous prophets. Now behold, my brethren, I would ask if ye have read the scriptures. If ye have, how can ye disbelieve? 
on the Son of God. For it is not written that Zenos alone spake of these things, but Zenoch also spake of these things. For behold, he said, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy Son. Now, my brethren, ye see that a second prophet of old has testified of the Son of God. And because the people would not understand his words, they stoned him to death. Alma is citing prophets who died as martyrs because they testified of Christ and were killed by the people who had not believed. And if that isn't enough, what about the testimony of Moses? But behold, this is not all. These are not the only ones who have spoken concerning the Son of God. Behold, he was spoken of by Moses. Yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever would look upon it might live. And many did look and live. But few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. O my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting about your eyes that ye might be healed, would ye not behold quickly? Or would ye rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful, that ye would not cast about your eyes that ye might perish? Now Alma is ready to bear his testimony and let the burden of his sermon rest on the souls of his listeners. In the previous verse, he warned them to cast about their eyes, read the scriptures that they might not perish. If they don't heed his warning, he says, If so, woe shall come upon you. But if not so, then cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God that he will come to redeem his people and that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins and that he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection that all men shall stand before him to be judged at the last and judgment day according to their works. Now Alma is ready to finish his parable about the seed which he wants them to plant in their hearts. That seed is the message of the coming of Jesus Christ. And now, my brethren, I desire that ye shall plant this word in your hearts, and as it beginneth to swell, even so nourish it by your faith. And behold, it will become a tree springing up in you unto everlasting life. And then may God grant unto you that your burdens may be light through the joy of his Son. And even all this can ye do if ye will. Amen. Alma chapter 34. After Alma finished his talk, Amulek stood up to bear his testimony. This was no ordinary preacher. Amulek was the former rich and wicked citizen of Ammonihah, who had been administered to by an angel and had then been taught the gospel by Alma. Since then, Amulek had been the faithful missionary companion of Alma and suffered persecution right along with him. 
It will be recalled that Amulek had been starved and tortured along with Alma in the prison of Ammonihah. Finally, when the chief judges and the rulers and the teachers and priests and all the dignitaries of the city had tortured and abused these two men almost beyond endurance, Alma called out upon God. Suddenly there was a loud clap of thunder, and the whole huge stone prison crashed to the ground. Those who had gratified their sadistic hatred by torturing the servants of God suddenly had the breath of life crushed out of them as they fell beneath the huge monolithic stones. Only Alma and Amulek came out of the wreckage alive. What a miracle! Of course, that had all happened eight years earlier, but we mention it here so it will be appreciated that Amulek was a miracle survivor of that previous persecution. He had become one of Alma's closest personal friends and a seasoned exponent of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now to these Zoramite apostates he declared, My brethren, I think that it is impossible that ye should be ignorant of the things which have been spoken concerning the coming of Christ, who is taught by us to be the Son of God. Yea, I know that these things were taught unto you bountifully before your dissension from among us. It was completely incomprehensible to Amulek that these Zoramites who had once been members of the church should be so completely ignorant of the glorious coming of Christ which would soon come to pass. And as ye have desired of my beloved brother that he should make known unto you what ye should do because of your afflictions, and he hath spoken somewhat unto you to prepare your mind, Yea, and he hath exhorted you unto faith and to patience. Yea, even that ye would have so much faith as even to plant the word in your hearts, that ye may try the experiment of its goodness. In a moment, Amulek is going to pick up where Alma's sermon left off. Meanwhile, Amulek wanted these Zoramites to try Alma's experiment and plant the seed of the gospel in their hearts to see if they could somehow recover some of the ground they lost when they apostatized. Of course, the great question to them was whether or not Christ was even coming, and whether or not the Zoramites should look to him for salvation. And we have beheld that the great question which is in your minds is whether the word be in the Son of God, or whether there shall be no Christ. And ye also beheld that my brother has proved unto you in many instances that the word is in Christ unto salvation. My brother has called upon the words of Zenos, that redemption cometh through the Son of God, and also upon the words of Zenoch, and also he has appealed unto Moses to prove that these things are true. Amulek wants to emphasize that Alma has already proved from the prophets that the Savior is indeed coming. And Amulek wants to bear his own testimony that when Jesus comes, he will provide the great eternal sacrifice needed for the salvation of mankind. And now behold, I will testify unto you of myself that these things are true. Behold, I say unto you that I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people, 
and that he shall atone for the sins of the world. For the Lord God hath spoken it. Now we come to the beginning of Amulek's precious explanation of the atonement. In all of the four standard works of the church, this treatise on the atonement is the best. It is the most complete and the easiest to understand. In the first place, he wants to stress how important it was to have an atonement. For it is expedient that an atonement should be made. For according to the great plan of the eternal God, there must be an atonement made, or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. Yea, all are hardened, yea, all are fallen and are lost, and must perish except it be through the atonement which it is expedient should be made. In this next verse, Amulek emphasizes that there must not only be an atonement or a divine sacrifice, but it must have two qualities or characteristics which no human sacrifice could provide. For it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice, yea, not a sacrifice of man, neither of beast, neither of any manner of fowl, for it shall not be a human sacrifice, but it must be an infinite and eternal sacrifice. So this sacrifice must be infinite or universal and eternal, which means it must last forever. Notice, however, that Amulek still has not told us the basic principle on which the atonement will be based. He will give that to us shortly. Meanwhile, he wants to explain who can qualify to make the atonement. In the first place, he wants to stress that no person could pay for the sins of somebody else. Now there is not any man that can sacrifice his own blood which will atone for the sins of another. Now if a man murdereth, behold, will our law, which is just, take the life of his brother? I say unto you, Nay. But the law requireth the life of him who hath murdered. Therefore there can be nothing which is short of an infinite atonement, which will suffice for the sins of the world. Amulek is making the point that it would be absolutely unjust for one person to take on the sins of another and try to satisfy the demands of justice by paying for the other person's sins. But many people believe this is just what Jesus did. They believe that somehow our sins are forgiven because Jesus paid for them when he was crucified. But the nagging question still persists. If it is unjust and wrong for one person to pay for someone else's sins, how did Jesus succeed in getting our sins forgiven? Amulek will come to this in just a moment. Therefore it is expedient that there should be a great and last sacrifice. And then shall there be, or it is expedient, there should be a stop to the shedding of blood. Then shall the law of Moses be fulfilled. Yea, it shall be all fulfilled, every jot and tittle, and none shall have passed away. Amulek wants to make the point that the Old Testament sacrifices were only symbolic, and that when the great and last sacrifice of the atonement is made, all of these symbolic sacrifices will be discontinued. Of course, the monumental question arises, who will provide this infinite and eternal sacrifice, which the scriptures say is essential? 
The answer is in verse 14. And behold, this is the whole meaning of the law. Every whit pointing to that great and last sacrifice. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. This is a shocking doctrine that the atonement will require the sacrifice of the most beloved supreme being in existence next to the Father. As we mentioned earlier, there is widespread speculation that the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross somehow paid for the sins of mankind. But nowhere in Scripture does it say he paid for our sins. Amulek has the answer. He says the atonement was based on a higher principle that not only satisfied the demands of justice for the sins of mankind, but provided a lot more besides. He reveals the basis for the atonement in verse 15. And thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name, this being the intent of this last sacrifice, to bring about the bowels of mercy, which overpowereth justice, and bringeth about means unto men, that they may have faith unto repentance. And thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircles them in the arms of safety, while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Therefore, only unto him that has faith unto repentance is brought about the great and eternal plan of redemption. So the atonement is not based on justice, but on mercy. The principle of mercy is so powerful that the Savior's sacrifice not only satisfied the demands of justice, but it made Jesus the great mediator. He can therefore provide the repentant not only with forgiveness, but total exaltation for all those who are willing to follow Jesus up to the entire plan of salvation. He provides the intercession to take mankind past the gates of death and carry the righteous back into the presence of the Father for time and all eternity. The thoughtful student of the gospel cannot help but ask, how did Christ's crucifixion accomplish all of this? In fact, why was the crucifixion even necessary for human salvation? As a 17-year-old missionary in England, I posed this question to Elder John A. Widsow of the Council of the Twelve. He was then serving as the president of the European missions with his headquarters in Britain. This is how I happened to see him occasionally. When I asked Elder Widsow why Jesus had to be crucified, he said, Who asked you to ask me that question? I replied, Well, nobody. It's my question. Ever since I was a little boy in Canada, they would tell us at Easter time how Jesus suffered. He was lacerated with a whip. He had a crown of thorns on his head. Blood was running down his face. Here was the very Son of God hanging on a cross with spikes driven through his hands and his feet. For me, this raised a lot of questions. I wondered who wanted to have this done to Jesus, and what did it accomplish? And if it was necessary, how did it work? Furthermore, I just wondered what it had to do with my salvation. 
So when I asked President Witzel why Jesus had to be crucified, he gave me an interesting reply. He said, I could answer your question, but you wouldn't understand it. You don't yet know enough about your Heavenly Father for me to explain it to you. I then asked him if he would teach me about Heavenly Father. It was an audacious request to ask a busy apostle. But he said if this was my question, then perhaps I would be persistent enough to trace through the scriptures, line upon line and precept upon precept, till I got the whole picture. Well, it took about seven years, both on my mission and after I returned home. Finally, I reached a point where he had me write it all up with the scriptural sources cited. And after reviewing it, he said, yes, I think you got the whole picture. Now, one of the reasons it took me so long was because President Witzel would not tell me the chapter and verse for each principle. He would simply describe a certain principle and then tell me approximately where it was covered in the scriptures, and then send me away to find it. When I asked him why he wouldn't give me the specific citation, he said, quote, I wouldn't deprive you of the thrill of finding it, <laughs> unquote. When I wrote up this material for President Witzow, I called it, quote, a personal search for the meaning of the atonement, unquote. Several years ago, Orville Matheny, the mission president in Dallas, Texas, asked me to give a talk to his missionaries on the atonement and explain it according to the principles set forth in the 34th chapter of Alma. I agreed, and since a major portion of that talk is about the chapter we are now covering, here is a tape just the way it was presented to around 200 missionaries in Dallas, Texas, a few years ago. I want you to put down, first of all, Mark 14 and 36, where Jesus said to his father, O oh, Father, all things are possible unto thee. In other words, you are God. You can do anything. You have it within your power. And then the petition, take this cup from me. Don't make me do it. Work it out some other way. Please do it without my having to go through with this. He was trembling. All right. Now the father knew there wasn't any other way. All things are possible unto God, but he's a God of law. He's a God of cause and effect. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice. But what the Son had been called to do is the way. There isn't any other way. So he had to send an angel. I wish we had the conversation. We can only guess what the angel might have said. But he ministered to Jesus and he probably said, you don't have to do this. Everybody has their free agency. But the Father knew you would do it. And that's why you were ordained from the pre-existence, because he knew you would. But you don't have to. If you don't do it, everything in which your hand participated by way of creation will go back to outer chaos. The earth, the animals, the plants, the human beings, their bodies, 
all the other planets on which there are similar families that you help create. They all go back to chaos. The only way they can be preserved and perpetuated and exalted is to have you do this. The angel probably said something like that. At least he convinced the Savior that he must go forward if he wanted the Father's will to be done. And so that's when Jesus said, Thy will be done. And he sweat great drops of blood. Now let me give you the other passages that fill in the details. Matthew 26 and 39. Let this cup pass from me. Luke 22 and 43. The angel came and ministered to him. Luke 22 and 44. As soon as he had said, Thy will be done, the terror of the assignment came upon him with such an overwhelming impact that the capillaries of his circulatory system couldn't even contain his blood. And it came through the sweat glands onto his skin, as it were, great drops of blood. That's a kind of suffering you and I probably couldn't even contemplate, let alone endure. But he did. And then he said in Matthew 26 and 42, Thy will be done. One of the things that you learn in studying the scriptures is to get all of the authorities who talked about the same incident. Take all of the details that each of them have and then piece them together so that you've got the whole picture. And that's the one we have here. Now, Jesus describes his terror in Doctrine and Covenants 19, D.C. 19, 15 to 19, verses 15 to 19 in D.C. 19. I'm going to read that to you in a moment, not now. In Acts 4 and 12, we are told that the Father could not have saved us. There is only one name given under heaven whereby you can be saved, and it is not Elohim. Now, I don't know whether that disturbs you or not. I thought God could do anything. Why couldn't he save us after we had fallen? Does that question bother you a little? That's the one I asked Brother Widsell. Doesn't God love us as much as the Son? It's his plan to have us come down. Why is there only one name given under heaven whereby we can be saved and it's not doesn't include the Father, only the Son? I want is there an answer to that? Yes, Brother Widsell said there's an answer. Seven years, you know. Didn't tell me about that part. But anyway. Now I think that's enough. Just draw a line. That raises all the questions. Now let's look for some answers. Brother Widsow didn't give me the answers the way I have lined them up here. He gave me some of the big answers first. And I want to start with one of the fundamental answers which is the bottom line of where it all happens. Would you write down 2 Nephi 2 and 14. Father Lehi is on his deathbed. 
He's trying to share with his sons the last element of gospel testimony before he passes away. He's pleading with his sons to acknowledge and recognize the great truths of the gospel. And he said, you must realize that there is a God and that he created everything either to act or to be acted upon. Now, there are two building blocks in the universe. One building block consists of an, an active ingredient. It acts. There's another thing that doesn't act, but it can be acted upon. Now, you've read that in Second Nephi. I had read it. I've gone through the Book of Mormon as a teacher over a hundred times, teaching it or studying it over a hundred times. And it's like President Matheny said, and the brethren, people keep adding things to the Book of Mormon for me, keep finding new things. Well, that's one that I finally found when I didn't find it on my own. Brother Witzel said it's there. Now you look for it there in the early part of Second Nephi. Well, there it was, something to act and something to be acted upon. Put down Doctrine and Covenants, D.C., 93 and 30. That which acts, the Lord said, is called intelligence or light. Intelligence or light. All right, you can put that note down if you wish. Maybe you'll remember it anyway. Now, what's an intelligence? What's an intelligence? No description except that it's, it's like light. And everything that exists, which is truth, is filled with intelligence. Everything is filled with it. Now, the best way for you to know about intelligence is to find out about it the way I found out about it. I said, Brother Witzel, what's an intelligence like? And he said, well, look in the mirror and tell me. <laughs> You're an intelligence. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's good. Yes, I'm an intelligence, aren't I? Now he said, um, how big are you? I said, I don't know. He said, where are you? Well, I'm right here. No, he said, you're not down there. Did you notice? Isn't that down from where you are? Oh, yeah, it is. He said, take hold your chin. Shut your eyes. So I did. Now he says, is that below you or above you or is that right on I said that's below me I said take hold your ear I said, is that beside you or and I said yeah that's out, that's out there he says where is your little I am I said it's way in there isn't it and he said I think so <laughs> way back in there it's a little tiny I am it's self-knowing it's self-determining it's anticipatory. It can learn. It's a little intelligence. Fascinating. And it always existed as an independent entity. A little I am. Oh, all right. That's an intelligence. All right. Now, Doctrine and Covenants 93, 29 and 30. DC 93, 29 and 30. Intelligence is eternal and it is independent to act for itself. And that's what the Lord says. This is the essence of reality that acts for itself. All right. Abraham 3, ABR. Abraham, in college you learn to abbreviate everything so you can keep up with the professors. I'll talk 400 words a minute. Abraham 3, verses 19 to 23. 
the intelligences see it talks about spirits and uh, that some are more intelligent than the other and then it tells you that it's talking about spirits which are organized intelligences so you, you're really talking about intelligences that are one above another so this is the fact that the intelligences are organized and graded and what the Lord is saying we start out with the little ones and we come up and here you are some of my most magnificent intelligences that I I gave bodies in my image you're real super you're special Right. Joseph Smith described the graduated intelligence that are structured in nature. DHC, that's Documentary History of the Church, DHC, Volume 4, page 519. And he says he gave this sermon to the apostles and their wives so that they know this wonderful, marvelous God science of graduated intelligence but then he didn't say anything more about it and so we have to go to the brethren the early brethren who heard it to get more details that which is acted upon is called element now that's DC 93 and 33 that which is acted upon is called element now put down JD that's journal of discourses 7 and 2, that's volume 7, page 2, where Brigham Young says, these little bits of element are capacitated to receive intelligence. Now notice what happens. You get a little piece of element, and it must be extremely tiny. You attach a little intelligence to it, and you can now talk to it and say, move, move that little fellow over here. All right, now you two combine together. Now bring in three more. All right, now that's right. All right, now that's, now start, let's get this thing going now. We've got ourselves a little, little atom here working around. We get enough of those and you'll get a molecule. It's a universe. When you got through, you got, I don't know how many, maybe a million little intelligences and bits of elements all spinning around that little universe there. We call it an atom. It's so tiny you can't see it. We put a lot of them together, we get a molecule. And they'll do certain things. And the Lord says in the 88th section how he gives them orders and he gives them a pattern that they follow. And they'll always follow that pattern unless you want them to do something else. And so you get uh, two little molecules that we call hydrogen and another little molecule that acts completely different called oxygen. And you put them together and you've got water. You say, isn't that nice? We've got water. But Jesus said, wine you know what to do high grade of wine please <laughs> and it happened all of a sudden the mystery has gone out of the miracles you and I perform things by playing force against force that's the way you make a motor go you know you explode something and it's force the Lord talks to things that's a better way won't you agree See, God doesn't violate law. He sets things going. And so you've got H2O, it's water. He said, but I need wine. Oh, all right. <laughs> now that's the universe in which we live. This is God's science. And Brother Windsor said, isn't that thrilling, Elder Scousen? And I said, I never even thought of that being a possibility. He said, God has revealed so many marvelous things to us if we'll just study it out and put it all together. All right, just a little bit more here. Abraham 4, 
ABR, Abraham 4, verses 9, 10, 12, and 18, where you see intelligence responding to the commandments of the gods during the creative process. Now watch what it says. And the gods commanded the dry earth, the dry land to come up, and they watched until they were obeyed. Dirt doesn't obey as dirt unless it had intelligence in it, would it? I mean, if it's, uh, if it's just stuff, it has no capacity to obey. This is one of the great revelations of God. These little intelligences are in everything. I can move a mountain, I just tell it to move. And I can let my priesthood tell it to move, and if it's authorized, it'll move. Nephi the second was told, the, the Lord said, I have declared before all my angels that when you speak, all things are to obey you as though God had spoken it. And I know that I can share this power with you because you'll never use it till I tell you to. And he could say to the clouds, don't rain, go away. Or he could say, clouds, come in and let us have rain. That's the power of God. Jesus would come and say to the little cells of the eyes, you have not functioned properly since the birth of this man. In your places, please. And the man says, I can see. Crooked arm, straighten. And it's straightened. Feet, walk and everything goes into its proper order and we call these miracles it is the science of God speaking to his creations and saying straighten up and fly right like you were supposed to <laughs> that's what he's doing now there's the key to the miracles now this is going to bring us closer to something else in just a moment when God commands, they obey. Let, let's take Helaman 12, H-E, Helaman 12, 3 to 18, where it describes all of the things that obey on God's command. They obey, just like they did during the creation process. Take Jacob 4 and 6, add that also. And 1 Nephi 20 and 13. Why, Jacob says, we can have the water obey us, trees obey us, when we speak with the priesthood. And Doctrine and Covenants, D.C. 88, 38 to 42, where the Lord says, an intelligence cleaveth to intelligence, and do all these little things. Doctrine and Covenants, 88, 38 to 42. That's where intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence to do the things God has instructed it to do today. All right, now we come to a most interesting passage hidden away. It took me a long time. I read over it at least 10 or 15 times. Brother Whitson says, you're missing it. It's in section 29. I said, but I don't, I couldn't find it. Read it again. Still didn't find it. I know, but you've got to get the spirit when you read. Maybe you'll get it this time. Finally got it. Doctrine Covenants 29 and 36. God says, my honor is my power. Do you want to know where God got his power from? He said, it's my honor that gives me power. 
My honor gives me power. And Brother Witzel said, this is a priesthood principle that often isn't quite appreciated. You are ordained from above. Your power comes from that over which you have supervision. What makes a great bishop? His ordination? He's ordained from above, isn't he? What makes him a great bishop? It's home teachers, home teaching. It's Sunday school teachers preparing their lessons. It's people having home evening, paying their tithes, going to the temple, and people say, my, what a great bishop. Why? He's being honored in his calling. That's what makes a great bishop. He was ordained from above. He was supported from those below that he supervised. Do you follow that? My honor is my power. Water, wine. When God appeared to Moses and said at the age, he was 80 years old when God appeared to him on Mount Sinai, which means bush, the burning bush. It's always been called Sinai ever since because it means bush. And the Lord said, I'm now going to rescue Israel out of Egypt. Oh, Moses, I, I think that's just great because I've got uh, Miriam, my sister's down there, and mother's still down there, and Aaron's still down there. Oh, I'm so happy to hear about that. And the Lord said, and I'm going to have you bring them out. Oh, no, 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 I'm a capital fugitive. Uh, no, they'd kill me. Well, the Lord said, I'll go with you. Moses said, I'm still scared. Well, the Lord said, what do you have there in uh, your hand? He said, my shepherd's staff. Throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground. A serpent. A metamorphosis took place. The Lord said, pick it up. So he did, by the tail, of course. <laughs> and it became a staff. Now watch what the Lord said. You see that hand? You want to see the miracles of God? See that hand? That hand is made of dirt. Isn't that fantastic? That hand is made of dirt. The Lord said to Moses, put your hand in your bosom. So he did. And the Lord talked to that hand and said, now my children, don't go all the way back. Let's, uh, let's go back. Leprosy? Simulate leprosy. Moses, take your hand out. Dripping. With an incurable disease. Moses, put your hand back in your bosom. <laughs> and the Lord said, my children, as you were. Moses, take your hand out. Oh, pink, beautiful pink flesh. Isn't that marvelous? And the Lord said, and if you want to take water and pour out and have it be blood, I'll do that for you. That they may know that you come to them not by your own strength only, but by the very power of God. So Moses did it, you remember, finally. He consented to go. Now, once we understand some of these principles, we're beginning to uh, comprehend a little bit ab about the God we worship. 
And that's what the Lord says. I want you to understand more about me. I want you to understand I'm not way off I'm a mystical being. I'm your loving Heavenly Father and I operate in an atmosphere of cause and effect. And in a universe of law, there's nothing magic about what I do. Everything is based on a science and I'm trying to teach it to you gradually. All right, now just a little bit more. We are told that God must maintain the confidence of these intelligences in order that they will sustain him and honor him. No other church has even dared to preach this doctrine. And no other scripture contains it save the Book of Mormon. That it is possible for God to fall. Now he isn't going to because he knows how to avoid it. He just wants us to know that he walks a razor's edge of necessity of having his conduct as the great arbiter of heaven whom they all love and respect absolutely immaculate in dispensing justice and truth and his love among them. Now that's a great discipline, is it not? All right, now put, put it down now. This is Alma 42, verses 13, 22, and 25. And Mormon, chapter 9, verse 19. 9, colon 19. All of these passages say, or he would cease to be God. Who dares preach such a, a principle? That God is under the necessity of maintaining certain conditions or he could cease to be God. He wouldn't have power anymore. How could he lose his power? By not being honored anymore. Now, you have the problem of the atonement. Our Father wanted us to come into a, a laboratory where good and evil existed side by side. Where you and I could learn for ourselves, not because Father said so, but we could learn for ourselves the difference between good and evil. And have you noticed a little rubs off? In fact, you have to repent and erase it continually keeps rubbing on to us. You think you've just got about got it whipped and the next thing you know you're doing it again. Or you're tempted to do it again. That's life. And that's how we learn the difference between good and evil and the penalties thereof. You never went through this before. You learned how to be obedient in heaven because our Heavenly Father told you what the results would be if you didn't and sure enough it would happen. But you couldn't quite understand. He, he gave you the criteria, but you didn't know for yourself, the Book of Mormon says. That's why you came into this life. You're really learning for yourself. And so am I. Believe me, I'm learning. All right. So the next passage is Alma 34 and 9. Where the Father cannot save us, the atonement is indispensable. You have to have an atonement. Well, what would happen if there hadn't been an atonement? Would you like to know that one? All right, it's 2 Nephi 9, 7 to 9. That's what would happen if there wasn't, hadn't been an atonement. 
you would have all become, I should say we all should, would have become subject to Lucifer and suffering the same consequences which the early brethren made very clear was total dissolution which means that they are stripped of their spirit body they're stripped of all things that pertain to the organized kingdom of God and are cast back into outer darkness naked a naked intelligence unorganized and the early brethren thought well maybe then they'll get another chance they'll be scooped up again you know and come into another creation and the father said don't ever or the Lord said in the doctrine and covenants don't ever preach that they get a second chance I've never authorized that to be taught that they get another chance so we don't preach that now how does the atonement work Alma 34 and 11 we can go quickly now we have the problem we have the basic ingredients for the solution Alma 34 and 11 one person cannot pay for the sins of another it says now that's Amulek that's not Alma talking that's a new convert to the church a missionary companion of Alma talking to the Zoramites Name's Amulek. That same talk. I hear people quoting Alma on this. No, this is Amulek talking. All right, Alma 34 and 11. He said, One person cannot satisfy the demands of justice by paying for the sins of another. Now, you just stop and think whether or not this is true. You see, I um, have committed a heinous offense, capital offense, and this good elder loves me enough to offer his life on behalf of my offense for which I should die and he said no brother Skousen still got a lot of teaching to do I'm going to I'll go on the gallows for him or whatever now I want I want does that satisfy any of you you feel good about that are you satisfied do you feel justice has been done has it satisfied your sense of justice and Amulek said no it won't now this is a very important thing to understand about the atonement. I hear people preaching, well, for this much sin there had to be this much suffering and that's what Jesus provided. No, that's the law of quid pro quo. Amulek says the atonement is based on a completely different principle. It isn't quid pro quo. It isn't this much suffering for this much sinning. It's a different doctrine entirely. That's what Paul was so upset about when the Jews tried to preach that doctrine. We've got it back in the church being taught occasionally that way. Then what does Amulek say the key to the atonement was? He said it was Jesus going on that cross. It had to be somebody, not you and me, but someone who is infinitely loved. Now that's universally. Infinitely means universally loved. Who would be so terribly tortured in his role as our leader that the sense of compassion in every little intelligence would be touched. Now isn't this interesting? You're the same way. You are subject to compassion. Every intelligence can be reached. He has a sense of compassion. 
and it's necessary to somehow reach that sense of compassion sufficient to overcome the demands of justice. Because when our Heavenly Father puts us down here and we try to repent the best we can, we're still unworthy to come back, are we not? It's impossible to become perfect in this life, right? Everybody agree to that? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Does that sound familiar? All right. You can't become perfect in this life. Those little intelligences say, Father, remember, you held us back. You can't overlook them. Our Father wanted us to learn the difference between good and evil, and it's impossible for him then to bring us back. Did everybody see the problem? Now, how does he get us back? He asks us to do the best we can. And he said, I have a, we've worked it out. We found out how we could reach those little intelligences. So when Jesus is on that cross, that suffering has got to be so terrible. That is, it, it is infinite in its persuasive power that we mean that much to him. So that when he pleads for us, he doesn't do it because of our righteousness. Because it wasn't that good. We did the best we could, but it still wasn't perfect. He says, they did the best they could. Now for my sake, will you let them come up? I'll be robbed of my reward of my labor. Will you let them come up? And that they say, Jehovah, not for their sake. Because they were imperfect. But if they mean that much to you, let them come up. And so Amulek says, that compassion that has been created in, the, in those little intelligences is enough to overcome the demands of justice. That's Alma 34. Let me give that one to you. 15 to 16. Alma 34, 15 to 16. So the atonement is not based on the law of so much suffering for so much sin. It's based on mercy and love. That's all it's based on. It's those little intelligence saying, oh, uh, all right, if they, if they mean that much to you after all you went through, how much did he go through? When Jesus was dedicated as the eldest son in the temple, an old man came hurrying up named Simeon and the Holy Ghost had whispered to him rush to the temple today you'll see the face of the Messiah as I promised you before you would not die till you had seen him and he came up and he took that little baby out of the arms of Mary and said now O Lord God Jehovah let me depart in peace for mine eyes have beheld thy salvation the glory of thy people Israel and a light unto the Gentiles then he handed the baby back and he said, because of him, little mother, one day sorrow will pierce your soul like a sword. And 33 years later, on Golgotha, the place of the skull, she saw that beloved boy of hers nailed to that cross, spiked, crown on his head, blood on his face, lacerated, sweating, crying out, in suffering. What do you think that did to that mother? It was so intense that the father finally had to do one final thing 
to make it supreme. He had to withdraw his spirit from Jesus. And that had sustained Jesus as it sustains all of us up to a point because it's in all of us. And all of a sudden the Father withdrew his spirit from Jesus. And as it left him, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then the spirit came back. And Jesus said, oh, I did it. It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he died. At that moment, Jesus became the Christ. You see, it's since I came to understand this and the suffering of the Father, that was a terrible experience for the Father. When he had to tell his son that it was necessary for him to go forward with it in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he had to withdraw his spirit from him on the cross, that was a terrible experience. And, and the Book of Mormon says the reason that Abraham was commanded to slay his own son Isaac was so that one earthly father would at least know what it's like to have the role of the father and have to sacrifice your son. Abraham didn't have to go with it, but he was reconciled. He was going to go through with it because he knew it was for a righteous purpose that he didn't understand. So he was going to go. The father just wanted Abraham to know at least one father to know a little bit what it's like to be the father on the night of Golgotha and then Jesus became the Christ and <clears throat> you know that since this began to clarify itself in my mind and I began to see what was what the meaning was of Jesus on that cross he's become my personal savior I love Jesus I love my Heavenly Father. Never realized before what they went through for, for me and my children and for you and all the rest of us. I've learned to love God with all my heart and feel closer to them. And now I love to testify about them. I love to testify of their, their great mission to us and their great sacrifice both the father and the son what they went through for our sakes God's science of salvation that's all I've been talking about this morning the real science of salvation why the atonement was necessary and it was and why God the father couldn't do it and why he said his son is the only name given under heaven whereby we may be saved so that we will know that they've done their part. Now all we've got to do is ours. And so that's why Jesus makes such a plea to us. And I'm just going to read this now in closing. I'm going to turn now to Doctrine and Covenants 19. Beginning with verse 16, listen to this. Let's start with 15. It's even better. Therefore I command you to repent. Repent lest I smite you by the rod of my mouth. You see, he's a God of love, but he also has to be a God of justice or the intelligences would lose confidence in him. And by my anger and your suffering be sore. 
How sore you know not, how exquisite you know not, yea, how hard to bear you know not. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all that they might not suffer if they would repent. In other words, what we do is to repent in order to qualify. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Now notice how terrible it was. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, and to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Then verse 19 is wonderful. Nevertheless, I partook and finished my preparation unto the children of men. I did it. I did. I was so frightened. I was so scared. I trembled. I asked the Lord not to make me go through with it. And he said I didn't have to. But let him know the consequences, no doubt. I did it. He just so thrilled about it. I did it. Now he said, don't let that be wasted. Now turn to section 45. Verse 3. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him. See, the Father loves us as much as the Son. It's his plan, really, because that's what Jesus said in the pre-existence, Father, I'll do it the way you want it done. Lucifer wanted to do it a different way and take credit. And the, and the son said, I'll do it as it's been done before. I'll do it. I will suffer. Who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father. Now watch what he does. Behold the suffering and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy son, which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. Now turn to Alma 34, and we have our concluding thought there from Amulek. A great tribute to the Savior and what his sacrifice accomplished. Alma 34 beginning with verse 14. And behold this is the whole meaning of the law, meaning the law of Moses. Every whit pointing to that great last sacrifice and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea infinite and eternal. It's going to reach every corner of the universe. And thus he shall bring salvation to all those who shall believe on his name. This being the intent of this last sacrifice to bring about the bowels of mercy which overpowereth justice and bringeth about the means unto men that they may have faith unto repentance. And thus mercy can satisfy the demands of justice and encircle them in the arms of safety while he that exercises no faith unto repentance is exposed to the whole law of the demands of justice. Now that's what you're in the mission field to tell about. Now the story that I've told you this morning, the one that we worked out with such difficulty, is the most profound principle of the whole gospel, the atonement, and why it's necessary. So that isn't what you preach, but that's what you must know in order to preach and testify of Christ. And let me just give you a, an example now as I, as I finish.
of Abraham Lincoln. I just want to show you how this happens every day in real life. If you want to see how mercy overcomes the demands of justice, watch this. There was a boy fighting in the Union forces, 19 years old, went to sleep on guard duty. And the opposition broke through and wiped out a whole flank of the army. Several hundred were killed, including some of the best friends of this young man. But he survived. Court-martialed, sentenced to die. He expected to die. He thought it was only just that he die. And President Lincoln was ready to sign his death warrant for his execution. And a little mother appears on the scene. She says, President Lincoln, when this war started, I had a husband and six sons. First I lost my husband, and one by one I lost five of my sons. Now I only have one son left, and he's sentenced to be executed with a firing squad because he went to sleep. He feels awfully badly. He lost some of his best friends and he expects to die. President Lincoln, I'm not asking for the sparing of this boy's life for his sake, but for his mother's sake. He's all I have left. For my sake, could you spare him? President Lincoln said, for your sake, little mother, I will spare him. And as far as I know, President Lincoln was never criticized for that decision. Does that touch the heart of compassion? Notice how that overcame the demands of justice. For her sake, I will spare him. And so that's what's happened for us. And the salvation of Jesus Christ is very real. And the price he paid was very terrible. And you're here to testify that Jesus is the Christ and that the gospel has been restored to prepare for his second coming. Now that's our mission. Now I went to the mission field thinking that testifying the restoration was my whole mission. No. That's incidental. The divinity of Jesus Christ is our main message. And the fact that he has now spoken to prophets and raised them up, they're walking the earth, the priesthood is back. That's our good news. We're preparing for the second Christmas when there'll be a thousand years of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. I only pray that God will bless every one of us to fulfill our callings with valiance. That the Spirit can testify to thousands of his children that Jesus is the Christ and that they can feel our testimony and that they can enjoy the fruits of the gospel like Brother Foote has come in to enjoy it with us and many, many others, hundreds and then thousands. That's my prayer. This beautiful Christmas season in the year 1980 and I pray God's richest blessings on you, my brothers and sisters, as upon myself, that our Heavenly Father will not be disappointed in our efforts and I say it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In this lecture, you will notice that the atonement which blotted out the demands for justice was based on the flood of mercy generated by the suffering of the Savior during the crucifixion. 
It was not from a quid pro quo payment for sin, that is, so much suffering for so much sin, but it was rather a flood of mercy which erased the demands of justice. Enoch saw the indescribable intensity of the Savior's suffering, which was so excruciating that it impacted every intelligence in this entire round of the Father's creation. Here is what the Scripture says, Quote, And he, Enoch, heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled, and all the creations of God mourned, and the earth groaned, and the rocks were rent. This is taken from Moses chapter 7, verse 56. The great Book of Mormon prophet Abinadi also understood how the atonement created a huge repository of mercy and compassion, which gave Jesus intercessory power forever to intervene on behalf of those who deserve special blessings. Here is the way Abinadi said the atoning sacrifice operates. It gave, quote, the Son power to make intercession for the children of men. Notice it isn't payment for sin. Having ascended into heaven, having aroused the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice. Notice that it was the bowels of mercy and not the payment for sins which overcame and satisfied the demands of justice. The instant the hosts of intelligences were flattered with such an overwhelming sense of love and compassion for the suffering of the Savior, it combined to completely nullify the demands for justice. This is what it means by the Savior's sacrifice completely overcoming the demands of justice. Of course, we should remind ourselves that the atonement was retroactive. As we mentioned earlier, when Jesus accepted this assignment in the council in heaven, the Father knew he would fulfill it. That's Moses chapter 4, verse 2. Therefore, it was looked upon as a fait accompli or a future event that would be treated as though it was already an accomplished fact. It thereby became available to Adam and Eve around 4,000 B.C. to blot out their transgression in the Garden of Eden. And that's what it says in Moses 6 and 53. And because the Savior volunteered to accept this assignment, it immediately went into full force and effect. The floodgates of vicarious blessings for the entire human family began to pour out on the children of men from the most ancient times. As a result, through the intercession of Jesus, our sins are forgiven and blotted out as soon as we have repented. Through the intercession of Jesus, we were allowed to receive physical bodies. Through the intercession of Jesus, we were allowed to become members of the Savior's church. Through the intercession of Jesus, we were allowed to hold the holy priesthood. Through the intercession of Jesus, we were allowed to be married for time and all eternity. Through the intercession of Jesus, we are allowed to go to paradise when we die. Through the intercession of Jesus, we are allowed to come forth in the first resurrection. And through the intercession of Jesus, we are allowed to return to the Father's glorious presence. Through the intercession of Jesus, we will be allowed to become exalted beings and have eternal posterity just like our Father.
Notice that none of these great blessings would have come as a result of Jesus merely paying for past sins. These were positive blessings that needed a mediator to intercede so that for the Savior's sake, the blessings would be granted. The recipient didn't earn these blessings. He or she merely qualified for them. The blessing came for the sake of Jesus. This brings us to the conclusion of our discussion of the glorious atonement doctrine as set forth in the Book of Mormon. Now let us proceed to cover the rest of Amulek's sermon to the apostate Zoramites. Now Amulek pleads with these Zoramites who have been compelled to be humble because of their afflictions to renew their covenants with God. And it all begins by pleading with the Lord. Amulek said, Therefore may God grant unto you, my brethren, that ye may begin to exercise your faith unto repentance, that ye begin to call upon his holy name, that he would have mercy upon you, yea, cry unto him for mercy, for he is mighty to save. Yea, humble yourselves, and continue in prayer unto him. Cry unto him when ye are in your fields, yea, over all your flocks. Cry unto him in your houses, yea, over all your household, both morning, midday, and evening. Yea, cry unto him against the power of your enemies. Yea, cry unto him against the devil, who is an enemy to all righteousness. Cry unto him over the crops of your fields, that ye may prosper in them. Cry over the flocks of your fields, that they may increase. But this is not all. Ye must pour out your souls in your closets, and your secret places, and in your wilderness. Yea, and when you do not cry unto the Lord, let your hearts be full, drawn out in prayer unto him continually for your welfare, and also for the welfare of those who are around you. Of course, prayer is only the beginning. Amulek feels these Oramites have been too hard-hearted toward each other. He therefore says, And now behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you, do not suppose that this is all. For after ye have done all these things, if ye turn away the needy and the naked, and visit not the sick and afflicted, and impart of your substance, if ye have, to those who stand in need, I say unto you, if ye do not any of these things, behold, your prayer is vain, and availeth you nothing, and ye are as hypocrites who do deny the faith. Therefore, if ye do not remember to be charitable, ye are as dross which the refiners do cast out, it being of no worth, and is trodden under foot of men. Amulek is now ready to bear down in pure testimony against these people and the apostate spirit which took them out of the church. He says, And now, my brethren, I would that after ye have received so many witnesses, seeing that the Holy Scriptures testify of these things, ye come forth and bring fruit unto repentance. Yea, I would that ye would come forth and harden not your hearts any longer. For behold, now is the time and the day of your salvation. And therefore, if ye will repent and harden not your hearts, immediately shall the great plan of redemption be brought about unto you. 
These next two verses are among the most famous passages in the Book of Mormon concerning the urgency to turn back to God and not postpone the day of repentance any longer. For behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. The penalties imposed upon the wicked by the laws of heaven are terrible and real. This is why Jesus pleads with the Father's children of every dispensation to take advantage of the Savior's magnificent gift of mercy through repentance. Otherwise, they will have to pay the excruciating penalty for their own sins. Ye cannot say, when ye are brought to that awful crisis, that I will repent, that I will return to my God. Nay, ye cannot say this. For that same Spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that ye go out of this life, that same Spirit will have power to possess your body in that eternal world. Then Amulek describes what happens to those who don't repent. He says, For behold, if ye have procrastinated the day of your repentance even until death, behold, ye have become subjected to the spirit of the devil, and he doth seal you his. Therefore the Spirit of the Lord hath withdrawn from you, and hath no place in you. And the devil hath all power over you, and this is the final state of the wicked. And this I know, because the Lord hath said he dwelleth not in unholy temples, but in the hearts of the righteous doth he dwell. Yea, and he has also said that the righteous shall sit down in his kingdom to go no more out but their garments should be made white through the blood of the Lamb. Now Amulek pleads with the Zoramites to remember what he has taught them and begin working out their salvation. And now, my beloved brethren, I desire that ye should remember these things, and that ye should work out your salvation with fear before God, and that ye should no more deny the coming of Christ that ye contend no more against the Holy Ghost, but that ye receive it, and take upon you the name of Christ, that ye humble yourselves even to the dust, and worship God in whatsoever place ye may be in, in spirit and in truth, and that ye live in thanksgiving daily for the many mercies and blessings which he doth bestow upon you. Amulek now wishes to leave with these Oramites a key to the best way to survive in the kingdom of God. He says, Yea, and I also exhort you, my brethren, that ye be watchful unto prayer continually, that ye may not be led away by the temptation of the devil, that he may not overpower you, that ye may not become his subjects at the last day, for behold, he rewardeth you no good thing. Now, my beloved brethren, I would exhort you to have patience, and that ye bear with all manner of afflictions, 
that ye do not revile against those who do cast you out because of your exceeding poverty, lest ye become sinners like unto them, but that ye have patience and bear with those afflictions, with a firm hope that ye shall one day rest from all your afflictions. Thus we conclude one of the most powerful sermons in all Scripture, specifically designed for members of the church who have become delinquent in their covenants with God. Alma chapter 35 We remind ourselves that 74 B.C. was the year of Alma's great mission to the apostate Zoramites. It turned out to be Alma's last mission. He had desperately hoped he could convert the Zoramites before they allied themselves with the Lamanites and launched another avalanche of hatred and civil war against the Nephites. The Zoramites had once been members of the church, but after their apostasy they went over to the region east of the Sidon River to a land called Antionum. To try and win over the Zoramites, Alma took with him on this mission three of the sons of King Mosiah, two of his own sons, Shiblon and Corianton, and two of his favorite converts, Amulek and Caesarim, or Zeezrom. These last two were living in a western city called Melech. On the flyleaf of Volume 3 of the Treasures of the Book of Mormon, we have a suggested map indicating approximately where all of the various cities were located. Unfortunately, this final mission of Alma left him somewhat brokenhearted. It is true that he had made many converts, but only among the poor and persecuted Zoramites. The Zoramite leaders sneered at Alma and his missionaries. This was partially due to the fact that Alma's youngest son, Corianton, turned out to be a miserable missionary. He abandoned his calling and allowed himself to be seduced by his Zoramite harlot. The two of them ended up at a beach resort. Meanwhile, Alma's other son, Shiblom, was captured, placed in bonds and stoned. But eventually the Lord rescued him. Of course, this mission to the Zoramites produced some of the greatest missionary sermons in the entire Book of Mormon. But Alma was disappointed that he hadn't converted the Zoramite leaders as he had hoped. But Amulek at least had an opportunity to preach his glorious sermon on the atonement. And then the story continues. Now it came to pass that after Amulek had made an end of these words, they withdrew themselves from the multitude and came over into the land of Jershon. Yea, and the rest of the brethren, after they had preached the word unto the Zoramites, also came over into the land of Jershon. It will be recalled that Jershon was occupied by the converted Lamanites who had been taught by Ammon and the other three sons of King Mosiah. Originally they were called the Anti-Nephi-Lehites, but now they were called the Ammonites after their great leader Ammon. Meanwhile, we can't help wondering what had happened among the Zoramites after Alma and the missionaries departed from their midst. And it came to pass that after the more popular part of the Zoramites had consulted together concerning the words which had been preached unto them, they were angry because of the word, for it did destroy their craft. Therefore they would not hearken unto the words. And they sent and gathered together throughout all the land all the people, 
and consulted with them concerning the words which had been spoken. Now their rulers and their priests and their teachers did not let the people know concerning their desires. Therefore they found out privily the minds of all the people. And it came to pass that after they had found out the minds of all the people, those who were in favor of the words which had been spoken by Alma and his brethren were cast out of the land, and they were many. And they came over also into the land of Jershon. And it came to pass that Alma and his brethren did minister unto them. The converted Zoramites left their own land and went over to join the people of Ammon, who also used to be Lamanites. The Zoramite leaders threatened the Ammonites if they accepted the converted Zoramites. But the people of Ammon paid no attention to these threats. They went right ahead and gave the new converts everything they needed. Now the people of the Zoramites were angry with the people of Ammon who were in Jershon. And the chief ruler of the Zoramites, being a very wicked man, sent over unto the people of Ammon, desiring them that they should cast out of their land all those who came over from them into their land. And he breathed out many threatenings against them. And now the people of Ammon did not fear their words, therefore they did not cast them out but they did receive all the poor of the Zoramites that came over unto them, and they did nourish them, and did clothe them, and did give unto them lands for their inheritance, and they did administer unto them according to their wants. All of these circumstances finally brought about the worst thing that could have happened as far as Alma was concerned. Now this did stir up the Zoramites to anger against the people of Ammon, and they began to mix with the Lamanites, and to stir them up also to anger against them. And thus the Zoramites and the Lamanites began to make preparations for war against the people of Ammon, and also against the Nephites. And thus ended the seventeenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. With the prospect of war descending upon them, the Nephites had to get the people of Ammon into a new location, since they were under covenant not to shed blood. The Nephites then moved their own troops into the region of Jershon and prepared for the oncoming war. And the people of Ammon departed out of the land of Jershon and came over into the land of Melech and gave place in the land of Jershon for the armies of the Nephites, that they might contend with the armies of the Lamanites and the armies of the Zoramites. And thus commenced a war betwixt the Lamanites and the Nephites in the eighteenth year of the reign of the judges. And an account shall be given of their wars hereafter. And Alma and Ammon and their brethren, and also the two sons of Alma, returned to the land of Zarahemla, after having been instruments in the hands of God of bringing many of the Zoramites to repentance. And as many as were brought to repentance were driven out of their land. But they have lands for their inheritance in the land of Jershon, and they have taken up arms to defend themselves and their wives and children and their lands. While the missionaries were laboring among the Zoramites, Alma had left his son Helaman and Himni, the son of King Mosiah, to watch over the church in Zarahemla. But when Alma returned to Zarahemla, he saw a spirit of apostasy and wickedness spreading among the members of the church and overriding the efforts of Helaman and Himni to maintain a high spiritual tone. 
Now Alma, being grieved for the iniquity of his people, yea, for the wars, and the bloodsheds, and the contentions which were among them, and having been to declare the word, or sent to declare the word, among all the people in every city, and seeing that the hearts of the people began to wax hard, and that they began to be offended because of the strictness of the word, his heart was exceeding sorrowful. Mormon the great historian does not tell us, but he knows that Alma is about to end his ministry. In order to do this, Alma gathers his sons about him to give him their last charge. It would be interesting to know what was going through the mind of Corianton, the young adulterer, who now saw that he was going to face his broken-hearted father. Therefore he caused that his sons should be gathered together, that he might give unto them every one his charge separately concerning the things pertaining unto righteousness. And we have an account of his commandments, which he gave unto them according to his own record. If you are enjoying this podcast with W. Cleon Skousen, you might enjoy his lecture recordings while at Brigham Young University, found at skousenlibrary.com.